What's up, guys? Doug Polk here, and welcome back for another episode of the Doug Polk Podcast. We've got a doubleheader this week, and today we are joined by Bart Hansen. we got a lot to talk about. We both recently moved to Austin, Texas, so it should be a lot to talk about as far as the city goes. Also, a lot of poker topics, World Series of Poker, the explosion of Texas poker, and a little bit of Bart's back story in poker as well. Should be a great one. But before we jump into that, we just had a podcast with Brian Pellegrino. Uh, just a couple of days ago, he stopped by talking about his new project he's been working on. And we also talked about a variety of poker subjects as well, including AI and poker and sort of the impending doom of everything we know and love. No, I'm just kidding about that part. But he did stop by. It was a fun podcast. Also, uh, next week, we're probably going to be taking the week off from podcasting. I will have a schedule out shortly. So stay tuned for more. And of course, as always, if you're new to the podcast, make sure you hit subscribe and join Show us some love, guys. I'm putting a lot of work into this. And, of course, it's great to see your guys' support as well as that way you will not miss future episodes because, you know, I want to see you here, guys. I love you guys. All right. So moving on, let's go ahead. And we are now joined by fellow content creator, owner of Crush Live Poker, and fellow local Austinite, Bart Hansen. Welcome to the podcast today, man. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me on. You know, I, I I would never have thought that I would have been on your podcast, but when you put out that tweet about sort of learning about Austin Poker, someone said, this would be a great podcast topic. And I kind of at the time LOL'd it, but then I was like, wait a minute, maybe Doug would want to talk about this. And I happened to send you some talking points that I thought might be interesting to have me on and seemed like we were in line with uh, some interesting thoughts or stuff to say. Yeah, well, we both recently moved to Austin, and it's funny how many people there seem to be in the area. You know, it seems every week I learn someone new that I know that is in the area or is in downtown or is in one of the suburbs or whatever. Austin's definitely a growing location, not just in poker, but in the country at large. In fact, I think Austin's one of the most moved to destinations and has been at the top of all of the most overpriced homes charts for the last the last couple of years. So uh, I think we actually both played a role in that. So it's actually, it's, it's people like me and you that are the problem, Bart. Well, I got, I mean, I think from just going back and forth with you on, on chat, I, I think you got a little bit unlucky with the timing. I got super, super lucky with the timing, but the market has exploded the last 18 months where houses have gone up by, I would say 50%. Doug, I closed on a house during COVID um, where the price went down. Uh, I bought a house uh, about 20 miles northwest. Uh, it's about 4,900 square feet for 615. We closed on it, and a similar house two doors down sold for a million like two weeks ago. I bought it in June of 2020. So the timing was just epic for me. Uh, but obviously, it's just shot up, and you know, I don't know what your experience was like over the last six months, but yeah, it's just taken off. I had the fortune of that happening on a home I purchased on my first house when I bought in Las Vegas. I bought right after the crash. And actually, the um, basically, it, there were a lot of homes going under, a lot of distressed assets, if you will. Sure. And I got a, a, a low ball offer in through on my first house that I owned in Las Vegas that I lived in for um, I don't know, eight or nine years. Um, mm. We called it the Brochen. A lot of epic Brochen stories along the way. Uh, definitely grew up in that home. I bought it. I couldn't buy alcohol. By the time I left, I had, you know, kind of conquered the world of heads up. So it was, it was definitely a ride, hell of a ride in that house. But I bought right after the crash in, I think I might've bought in 09. I always get the time I slightly messed up, but I think I might've bought in 09 and, you know, the house had, was, would, had been valued at 750 two years earlier. And when I, by the time I bought it, it was 350. So, you know, Vegas wow. got, Vegas got pummeled. 
right? Pummel. I remember people going into that like Meridian complex, like like on the back of the link um, on Kovacs. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, and mm-hmm. going in and buying like condos, you know, like 704 square foot condos for like thirty thousand, buying them like in clumps in like 2008, 2009. But there is something that's interesting about te- Texas and taxes that sort of has to be said. Literally, I moved out of California. My wife and I, we knew we were going to start a family. And I got fourth in the monster stack in 2019, which was like a $350,000 score. And I was like, let's just get out now. So we ended up moving to Vegas for a few months. So I saved some state tax, like prorated for that year. And then we ended up moving to Texas. Now, Texas is a no income tax state, which is great. But depending on where you live, it's very high property tax. And now that the values have shot up so much the property tax base like in these communities has just absolutely exploded and it's like what else am i getting now that my town or my city is now making two to three times more revenue total from a few years ago because if you buy a house for a million dollars and it was only four hundred thousand like a few years ago and you're new you're going to be paying 2.5 to 3% in property tax on that per year. So you living there now, the town's getting 30,000 as opposed to when it got, you know, 10 or 15 a couple of years ago. So property tax is a big thing here. They do have a homestead, which means that your, I think your assessed value can only go up like 50 or 100,000 a year or something like that. So there is a small cap, but, you know, it will catch up. But, you know, you have to work those things into consideration. You, you do have to work those into consideration, but... There are a couple um, important factors there. And I know the audience is thinking, oh, wow, we're going to talk about Austin home values, guys. Really <laughs> kicking it off with some heat. This is what I'm here for. Um, but, you know, so on the on the home that I, that I purchased here recently, I, I want to be quite clear. I definitely overpaid for the home that I got. And I got in a multi-bidder situation. I love the house. I'm looking at a long-term stay. So got completely owned, did not make money in this house. I'm sure I overpaid. This is not a bragging story. I'm just saying that, with home timing, the way that it works is when you need a home, you need a home. So when I was younger, I had the opportunity to make a good play. And then, you know, today, obviously, didn't go that direction. But talking about the property taxes in Texas, Texas is pretty sketchy, especially Austin, with the way that they do a lot of the home listings. And I, I actually don't think that it's it's quite right the way that they do it. It's a lot of off-market stuff, especially when you're looking at the higher-end um, homes. So it's off-market, doesn't hit the MLS, not no one knows exchanged hands privately and so it it's harder to assess the property value on those homes and then also um, a lot of that information is just never shared publicly so if you look at the assessed value okay austin has really high property tax but the assessed values tend to be quite low relative to what their true actual values of the land are or what the, the value of the property is so Okay, it's a high number, two and a half percent. But if it's a high number, a high percentage of a low base value, you actually still aren't paying nearly as much tax as you might pay in some other regions. Yeah, I mean, it really depends too. Obviously, you can appeal it. It's up to the county. I mean, for just as an example, I had a pre-market offer on the house. So the owners that we ended up getting the house for six fifteen or six twenty four, they were supposed to accept our pre-market pre-market offer at six seventy five the week before COVID hit, and it was a big no no that they backed out and they took the house to open house and then COVID hit and then they had to sell the house. So they actually got screwed. But yeah, you're right. There's a lot of pre-market off market type of stuff here too. 
It's good. It's good though if you're in the the mix in Austin because there's something called the Austin Luxury Network, and it's the small group of high end realtors that all know each other and they're all best friends. They laugh when mm. they see each other and they get all the listings. It's on the MLS, and basically, if you're not in this group, you can go fuck yourself. Oh, we're so great, and, and they're just. I don't know. They're just, they're just, uh, I remember meeting up with, a, with another realtor and I said this cause I said, Hey, this doesn't seem exactly right. The way they're going, the way that this is, it seems really great for the realtors and the other realtor just, she just laughed. He goes, Oh, you're right. It is. It is. That it is. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> wow. O- o- openly pompous about how, how this is basically just, you know, 50 people just selling their homes back and forth. Um, but you know what? I guess it, it just, it, the and way. their income has just skyrocketed as well, right? Cause they make a percentage off the commissions for the sale. So it's, I mean, to be a realtor here is just one of the best jobs you could ever have right now. Well, if you're in that group, the other 99% are, are starving. Anyway, um, moving on from, from home values, because I think that people, people are probably sick <laughs> of that subject. So can you, can you talk about your decision to leave California? I, I recently left Las Vegas and I strongly considered California. We actually went and lived in Ocean, sorry, Orange County for um, a few months. And I realized I could never do this to myself, uh, which sucks because, you know, I was born in California. I grew up in California. I want to like California. But what was your decision making like in terms of why you decided to leave California and, and what made you pick Austin? Well, I mean, I had lived in a one-bedroom apartment in West Hollywood since 2000. I've lived in LA. I graduated from college in Syracuse in 2001, lived with my parents for six months, and then just drove to LA. I didn't know anyone. Uh, I thought I wanted to do something in entertainment. I had never played a hand of poker before. Then Moneymaker came in and I got into it. And obviously, there was a bunch of poker in LA. But I had lived in LA since 2003, and I'd lived in a one-bedroom apartment since 2006, and uh, met my girlfriend, which became my wife. We definitely wanted to start a family. I am accustomed. I was brought up in suburban Boston with very, very good public schools. And I knew right away, I mean, there's no way you can send your kids to public school in LA Unified where I lived. Obviously, we needed more space. And if you lived anywhere in the city, I mean, you're talking about houses that are what, four or five hundred dollars a square foot, if not more, I might even be underballing it. I mean, it was just unbelievable. So we knew that we wanted to move. And I mean, state income tax was a huge, huge factor. I mean, you know, up to it, you know, people look at it and it's like 15%, I think this is the proposal, or I don't know if it's in place for sort of the highest income people, but for the regular people, like above 80,000, I think it's like 9.3%. It's a very contrived graduated rate. And I was just like, and I'm not going to be able to send my kids to public school. And also, Doug, like the last, I would say, two years that I was there, the homeless problem got really, really out of control. It used to be contained downtown around Skid Row. And I remember the city, I watched a documentary on this, the city was actually warned about Skid Row back in the 70s when nobody lived downtown. The city was told by people that this would what they were doing was going to cause a skid row, which was basically putting all the services in one area, the shelters, the zoning for SROs, which are single resident occupancy, which are like tenant type places. They're like, you're going to create like a homeless town. And that's exactly what happened. But then in the late 2000s, when people started actually living downtown, there was a push to push these homeless people out. We saw that play out over the next 10 years. And I lived Right north of Santa Monica between Fairfax and uh, La Brea, if people know LA. And when we were about to leave the last few months, there were homeless people on Sunset Boulevard between Fairfax and La Brea, where the Guitar Center is and stuff like that. I had never seen any of that. The fact that you could have a $5 million house that was 
3000 square feet in a, what was a nice area of LA and walk out and you're going to have homeless people in the street. You can't even walk to Whole Foods or Starbucks. That was really what was going on. So it was homelessness. It was the tax rate. Um, those were really the main drivers. Right. That makes sense. And and I I have a a little chart that I put together. I'm just reading off right now of pros and cons of California. The cons seem to be homeless, terrible traffic, very bad, dangerous fires, (laughs) some of the worst taxes in the country. And this, this applies to me specifically a bad internet, which I I really get Ah, in California. Yes. Um, occasional power outages, it is unbelievably expensive. In fact, more so than pretty much anywhere else in the country. That's the con side. But on the pro side, we have very nice weather. Yes. So I think I think when you really when you put them together, it was a tough decision. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. It was just it came right down to the wire for me. It's interesting because I don't even know if I put that on the talking points about the bad internet when I was in my apartment. So when you're in these congested areas, like I had broadband cable internet, but it's like a large node. It's like you're sharing almost like a cable node with say a three or four block area and they would throttle my up speed. I was paying $120 a month and my up speed maximum I could get in that building in LA was like 10 megabits per second. And now I have one gig uh, symmetric fiber here in Austin, one gig up, one gig down. Yeah. So, so no, the internet was brutal. It was brutal. Yeah. I've, I've had that problem all over the place in California and I did a little bit of, a little bit of not, fairly high level counter-strike gaming a little bit of csgo i played at um i played in esea advanced which is probably maybe not in the top 20 teams in the u.s but the top 100 and uh we always had people playing on the team from california and the stuff that they went through and then i went there for a few months and the stuff i went through and it was just the people from california you almost couldn't play it's oh he's california oh sorry the third world country of california (laughs) can't connect to the servers i gotcha yeah Uh, i it's a small thing but you, you wouldn't you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't realize that said California people love California. I mean, both of my parents live in California. I have a bunch of friends in California. We all make fun of California. They make fun of California. We all laugh and then they go back to live in California. So, I mean, I think for some people, I just, they're just willing to kind of put it with whatever because the weather is very, very nice and the atmospheres are, the atmosphere is nice. The, um, sort of the attitudes are, are typically, it's a little more laid back. It's a little more chill, but, uh, at least in some places, I guess, probably not. The case but would, in downtown LA. But would you rather have internet though or a stable power grid? Because that's a con here in Texas right now, too. A stable power Fair. grid. See, this is why you do what I did, Bart, and you get on the same power grid as a hospital. And then Oh, re- oh wow. So we you, didn't we didn't have the I, I wasn't here yet during the, the, the Texas freeze, but we never went we never went down. Oh, you never had any rolling types of blackouts. So we had rolling black it was an amazing time that Texas freeze, because I grew up in Boston. Well, not only was it, first of all, I would say two or three weeks before that it had snowed here. I live in Leander, which is just north of Cedar Park. It had snowed here six inches before that storm for the first time since 1983. Then that storm happened. And for people that live in cold weather, they can relate to this. It was below freezing for one week straight, including the daytime here. It never got above freezing during the day. That stuff you don't even see in Massachusetts. Usually, like during the day, it will peak up to like 35. It was amazing. So we went through rolling blackouts of about four hours on, four hours off. Everybody's heat and their AC is connected to a thermostat, which is electric. So it never really got that bad in my house. Maybe it got as low as, say, 55. But I mean, there are some horror stories about people burning down their apartments and their houses, trying to like, you know, 
start a barbecue grill, you know, for heat, their apartments getting down into the thirties, things like that. And what kind of scares me, which has moved me to get a home generator is I think something like this happening will be a lot worse or would, would be a lot worse if it actually happens in the summertime. Like I'm talking about like in July, August, September, because um, you can't get out of the heat, right? I mean, if it's 45, you can just bundle up, but what are you going to do if it's a hundred with it, with humidity and you have no AC? This might just be the factor from the West Coast. I lived in Vegas for more, most of my life, um, Southern California a bunch, but that doesn't scare me that much. It's just going to be, it's just going to be really hot, and that sucks, and it, and you're going to be sweating it out. But the cold feels more dangerous when you hit freezing really? points, and yeah, I don't know. I, think I, so. I, I don't know, man. I would rather have it 45 in my place than have it 100. Well, 45 inside. is not freezing. I'm talking about when it's you know, 27. Oh yeah. And right. That's, that's the real worry, right? When, yeah. when things are kind of past the freezing point. Um, so let's talk about, let's talk about poker in Texas, because this is something I didn't realize was going on. When I first got the Texas, we we're checking out some different areas. I went and I got a coffee. I stepped outside, I'm taking a sip and there's just a big sign. It says shuffle five, one, two. And I'm thinking, what? What that sounds poker. I didn't know that there was really poker poker going on in Texas. I didn't know what that was. Open the door, boom, card room. And I thought, this this is just gonna follow me for the rest of my life, right? It doesn't matter where I go. <laughs> uh, finally, in the great state of Texas, no poker here. Boom, card room right there. Uh no, I'm I'm kidding. But 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 really there was a full blown card room right there. And uh then I started to look into it. There's over 70 rooms in Texas. Austin specifically seems to have uh, maybe the most of almost any of these cities. Dallas is exploding. Houston has a couple of bigger clubs. Um, what are your thoughts on the expansion of poker in Texas and and what games are like here and, and what poker is like here? Well, I mean, there's a couple things. So part of the reason why it's easy to expand now is a couple people sort of laid the groundwork where they started the idea of these membership clubs. And basically what a membership club in Texas is, is that Anyone can open a room if there's no licensing. Anyone can open a room if they have space and you pay a membership fee, whether it's yearly, monthly, you can even pay by the day and uh, you pay time. So that's all it is. It's poker. There's no other games. There's no casino games, no sports. It's just poker. It's a membership club. So when that was sort of allowed to go on and the places weren't shut down, you know, a few years ago, then it started to proliferate. And it started to expand. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned Dallas because Dallas was a spot that's relatively new because the Native American interest in Oklahoma, because it's only like a 45-minute drive from Dallas to Choctaw and uh, Windstar, they had a lot of influence on state government and, and the city, actually, because I think the main driving point of these areas is the city. Will the city allow it? They had a lot of pressure. And for the longest time, Dallas didn't have rooms. But now rooms have just opened in the last year. And TCH Dallas right now is just absolutely crushing it but from a poker perspective for the player it's unbelievable doug because the amount you pay as a player is so much less in terms of rake than california you can actually come here and play live low stakes one two and you can beat the game you can't do that in california where it's a seven dollar flat drop per hand with a hundred dollar cap buy-in what do you mean by flat drop? Whether the what does that mean? Just oh, you know. It, oh, so so in California, the games are a drop, which means that different from a rake, if you see the flop, the entire amount is dropped. So you know you could have a rake where it's ten percent up to a five dollar cap, and you know the pot's only twenty bucks. They're only going to take two dollars. That's like pot. in Vegas, right? Yeah, that's in Vegas. But okay. in California, the rules of gaming is that the uh, casinos 
can't have a financial interest in the size of the pot or the outcome of the event, which is why they have these weird California blackjack games. So it's a flat drop. So they take the entire amount on the flop. They actually don't take the entire amount. They take extra on the turn in the river now. But you could literally be playing in a five 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 dollars $500 cap game like a Commerce Doug. And uh, by the river, no matter how big the pot is, let's say it's only $15, one guy limps in and the blinds check, they're going to take $8 out of the pot on the river. Let me just add this to my California list. Um, I think I'm going to put that <laughs> in the pros. I'm going to put that on the pros side of this. Yeah, that seems great. Uh, well, because I heard that uh, it's actually better for the games. No, oh, we're, I heard we're, that. We're, yeah, some, somebody that you might actually had on the podcast recently, too. So possible. That, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> possible. No, so you can play low stakes here. It's unbelievable. And the other thing, too, is the low stakes games, the structures they have are all match the stack for the most part from one, three or higher. And that's, in essence, uncapped, except in the beginning. But so it's like an uncapped one, three game, which is why the games play, play so big here. And they're taking like 10 bucks an hour. It's unbelievable for the player. It is really unbelievable for the player. An unbelievable deal. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. I didn't realize that it was that jarring. I, I, I guess I, I haven't played much poker in California. I assumed that places were more using the Vegas model. When I was playing small mid-stakes, I was only playing in Vegas pretty much. Uh, so that, those are the games that I'm used to. And, and I didn't realize that there were these game types that you can't possibly beat. That seems yeah, that seems, absolutely. Kind, seems kind of bad to have games that are impossible to beat. Yeah. Um, so that that makes a lot of sense to me that that you know people are are taking their opportunities to play here because of the of the low rate comparatively, but even putting that to the side, it just seems that a lot of people want to play, and there's this real this real passion for poker right now that I kind of haven't seen in a long time in a lot of areas where there's just this many people that want to play poker that want to play different kinds of poker that want to play bomb pots want to play Omaha they want to play this and that. And it's just kind of surprising to me that we're having sort of a sort of just this this Texas poker boom, which, you know, frankly, I mean, Texas Hold'em, it, it all comes back to Texas, right? I, it makes sense to me, but it, it's great to see. And uh, I'm definitely I'm definitely considering jumping in, throwing my name in the ring and, and trying to start my own venture or maybe partnering with someone if it makes sense. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly considering throwing my hat in the ring here and you tweeted telling me that it was a very bad idea and obviously we talked a little bit about that privately but w- what are your thoughts on getting involved in the texas poker scene from an ownership standpoint and i mean is that something that you've considered or why do you think that it's a bad idea sure i mean absolutely it's something that i've considered and i've actually been approached by it so if you can take a look at the absolute opposite of what i just said about how good it is for the player because of the low re- you know the low rake and stuff you can play that out on the ownership side where the revenue is far less, right, than typical rooms. Um, you do not have the opportunity to bring in other revenue through, you know, even California style blackjack games where the house doesn't have an interest. They're just taking an ante, but they're still making a ton, even more than poker. At least in Austin specifically, there's another thing here, a couple other things. No places sell booze or food. And for whatever reason, and I've asked around too with people that have been here longer, the Volume or player pool is not is nowhere near as strong in the Austin area compared to the other three major cities of San Antonio, Dallas, and Houston. Um, and I've asked several different people here that have been here for years, and they all agree that Austin sort of has they just can't support that many games. So it's kind of a combination. And I told you privately, I, I openly admitted, Doug, that I don't know the numbers. Like, obviously, I'm sure it would probably be very easy for you to figure out like, you know, rent 
per square foot, labor, all that other stuff. But just from what I have seen, this specific area isn't crazy, doesn't have a crazy amount of tables going like the other cities. And for whatever reason, in Austin, none of these places serve booze, whereas in the other cities they do. Maybe that can change. I don't know why it is. A lot of times, like these Texas places will have these rules that are still around from when they first started that didn't really make any sense to me. And they're just around because they were around. For example, for the longest time, you couldn't tip with the chips that you played with that were in play at the table. They used tip chips. And I was like, what is this? Like somebody came up That's with still, this. Like, I still see that some in some places. Yeah, but for the most part, they've just sort of eliminated it. So maybe there is a possibility that you could serve food and beverage. But the thing I would tell you, Doug, is, is that if you were active and it was Doug Polk's poker room and you were appearing and you were very active in the business and playing, absolutely, I think you got a real shot. If it was just your name sort of, you know, plastered on the on the wall and you had you had nothing to do with it, I think you're just some other poker room. And I think it would be very, very hard in this area specifically. The market in north of Austin is very saturated too. Like the lodge just opened a huge room. You've got TCH. South of Austin, you got Shuffle, and there was another place. It's amazing. There's like 20 clubs in Austin, but I don't even know half of them because they don't really even have games because remember anybody can just open space there's no licensing it's different than in california where in california not only is there a moratorium on new licensing but the clubs will actually buy up any licenses that come up like in a building that might have been grandfathered in and shelve the license so that nobody no people can come up and like basically open new clubs but here in austin i would be concerned as an owner that i might get undercut that somebody could take all my business like immediately if someone made a bad decision or something like yeah. that. I mean, that's just free market, but sure. I mean, if I, if I get involved in this space, I'm going to do it. Like I've done everything in my career, which is I'm going to go all in. I'm going to make sure mm. that it's successful. I'm going to be there all the time. I'm going to make sure that it's something special. Like players want to come play at. Uh, I mean, that's just kind of the way that I, that I do things. You talk about the three major markets. So you talk about San Antonio, you talk about Dallas, you talk about Houston. Yeah. They're all, they're all, in, they're all very different. And I've not been to Houston or San Antonio, but I've talked enough with people in the industry now to have sort of a general idea of all of these. Houston seems to have very much sort of its own thing going. It's been around for a very long time. Uh, poker in Houston goes back a, a, a long ways, and then you know Johnny Chan's room seems to be the really the really the big the big room there. Um, though that room seems to be maybe debatably the most successful in Texas. I mean, obviously TCH Dallas seems to be doing pretty well now, but yep. that room seems to just always have a ton of games going. Um, I, I think that there's a, a fairly large Chinese support, Chinese player support for, for Johnny Chan and, and mm-hmm. the area. I think that there's more of a Chinese community there than there are, there is in some of these other cities. Um, you know, San Antonio has more of a Hispanic influence. Dallas is obviously a more, more of a hodgepodge of everything. So, um, I think that Johnny Chan has managed to kind of carve out his own, um, sort of space there with that, which seems to be pretty successful. Um, Dallas, though, so I would agree with you. Houston seems to have a much bigger scene than Austin, at least in terms of table number. Dallas is is just is so new. I, I wouldn't say that I think that it's you know a stronger location than Austin, other than the fact that Dallas has way more people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wouldn't say that the rooms there have been historically a lot stronger than Austin. I mean, what are, are you? What rooms are you thinking about specifically when you talk about that? Well, remember though, they Dallas is very very new. It's only in the last year that these rooms have even been around. Whereas Austin has been around for five or six years because, like I said, that local 
sort of push to not have the games there, which I think came from the Native American side. It's interesting you said Johnny Chan thing, because I could have sworn that he literally just, they just changed the name of that place that you're talking about, Social 51 or something, to Johnny Chan's place. So that was a name change, I think, Doug, that was actually relatively recently. I heard that they were doing, he was opening a Johnny Chan club in Austin, right across the street from the lodge too, as well. So that's also another thing. <laughs> I, I think that uh, Johnny Chan bought people out and okay. that he was connected with uh, 52 Social and they split. Yeah. And I think 52 Social is is opening in Austin. Oh, okay. Um, and Johnny Chan has a more significant stake in that room now and, and has named the Johnny Chan's room. Ah, That's my understanding. Yeah, got it. Uh, I, I, I've, yeah. I've been following this up kind of closely, but, you know. Yeah. No, no, it makes, it makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely new in Dallas. It's definitely new in Dallas and there's more people, but... You know, like I said, I mean, <laughs> I would just say that I think the location of Austin too. Austin's pretty spread out, so where you would want to put the place too, I think is is important. Yeah, Austin's funny uh, because the the city it sprawls over such a, a large area, and you know, you go from one side to the other. If traffic's bad, it can take you really kind of forever to get from one side to the other. Uh, my friend Jason Les, um, he's the CEO of Riot Blockchain. They recently purchased Whitstone, which is close to Austin. I said, oh yeah, I'll come to the investor meeting. It'll be, you know, I own some shares, whatever. I'll come check it out. And uh, I punch it in and it says hour and 45 minutes away. I'm, I'm, you know, very far West, Southwest Austin. Yeah. And then he's outside Austin. It's rock something around round rock. And I was going to say, it must sound no, like no, round, not rock. round rock. Oh, not not round rock. Oh, it's, it's a, it's a much lesser known rock than round oh, rock. Okay. <laughs> and, and it was just way out there. And I, it just took me, I was, Oh, I didn't realize I was going to have four hours of driving today, which was, was just like but, LA, right? Yeah. yeah LA yeah. is very similar. Yeah, yeah. So when people say I'm coming to Austin, sometimes I look at where they're at and I think, Oh, only 55 minutes away. It's we're, we're practically neighbors here. Yeah. So, uh, Austin <laughs> definitely has some sprawl going on. Um, the last note I want to talk about on just like the, the city by city comparison, San Antonio seems to have a very different flavor than the rest of Texas. It seems to be very, very Hispanic uh, compared to some of these other cities. And I've not heard as much about poker in San Antonio. Have, have you played down there? I actually did take a trip down there once or twice because there's a couple. I like to play Big O, which is a split pot game. And there are a couple rooms that specialize in that. So my wife and I actually have gone there several times. But I'm not like overly familiar with the intricacies. It's just from what I look at for the most part on Poker Atlas and things like that, that they just tend to have more games on a regular basis running than Austin. Also, people don't realize that San Antonio is actually the second largest sort of metro area in Texas by population behind Houston. Um, it's really, really big. Uh, there's a lot of people there, too. So Dallas is third. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it really depends on like how you define the what a metro area it is or a city. But um, Austin's certainly fourth. We'll is it because it is it because Dallas Fort Worth splits people? Yeah, me. I, I mean, it's possible. It's possible because that that would be that would be honestly shocking to me. I'll, well, look I'll, it up, Doug. I'll, I'll, I'll check it later. Someone, <laughs> okay. someone, someone will let you know. I'm sure someone okay. tweet at at Bart Hansen or Metro yeah. area city. You know, something like that. But okay, yeah. all right, so, sounds good. So, um, what kind of? So, do you still play poker actively? I do. I mean, I probably I try to get out there once or twice a week. And it's usually on live streams because it's the best of both worlds for me. First of all, you know, you, it's kind of a similar situation. You said you moved to Austin. You didn't even know that there was poker here. People seem to think that I moved to Austin because of live streams. 
I didn't know that there were going to be live streams here. When I when we moved, I heard that TCH was starting a live stream. Flip forward 18 months later, and there's a live stream at TCH, at the Lodge. There's one at the Palms. There's one in San Antonio. There, I, there's like six live streams in Texas here within a 300-mile you know radius of me. They're the best games, absolutely the best games. So there's that. And then obviously, I can use the video content for, for videos, for YouTube videos, for CLP videos. So... I mean, for the most part, I like to play on live streams, but I always need to stay relevant for content. I mean, my site is a live training site. So, you know, I have to play because I don't think that it would be, uh, you know, I just, uh, it would, it wouldn't really. You definitely, you definitely don't. There are, there are plenty of people that, that sell training stuff that have never played anything of any substance at (laughs) all and seem to be doing okay. So I don't think it's, it's good too, though. It's definitely good too. I mean, um, but I'm I'm the guy though. I mean, it's not just like I'm the owner. I put out all the content on my site. I'm doing sure. 80% of the content a week, two weekly podcasts. So I have to stay relevant, you know, but it's very convenient for me here. Fair. I yeah. have to echo the sentiment on Texas poker. These games are completely absurd. I, I would say California poker can be quite good. Uh, definitely with some soft games going on there, but this is just night and day compared to Vegas. And, and you know, I haven't been grinding the Vegas streets in several years now, so maybe things have changed, but I kind of imagine they've not. Vegas tends to have a lot of people that are trying to go pro, trying to be a pro, trying to live the pro lifestyle, uh, trying to play as well as they can. Um, I It has a more predatory vibe going to it. Texas poker has a little more of a, people are here to gamble. A lot of the, most people at the table are not pros, if not, you know, the majority of people are not pros. There's, it's just a, it's a more casual gambling kind of atmosphere, and people tend to to, to play that way. I had a, I have a funny story that happened to me yesterday. I went down and I played at one of the rooms. I'm just kind of checking all of them. I went and played at the Palms, and uh, I was talking about how soft the games were here. And then one of the players complained. You know, said, "You know, man, I'm, Berkey was telling people that they're soft here, and I'm saying, you know, don't let the word out about this." <laughs> and I said, "Get the word out. What do you think people are going to move to Texas to come play in a soft two five game?" Like, well, maybe the two five Vegas pros, and I'm like, oh no, not the two five Vegas you, pros. I, I think you're, I think you're underestimating though what how that happens because I mean, you know, you usually don't play a lot of two five, but it's happened in a lot of places, uh, specifically Ohio t- t- pros to Northern Florida. But there's one thing I'm going to say that always gets me in trouble, somewhat inflammatory. It's half joking and half serious. Is that there has not been a Euro invasion here in Texas with COVID, and I've seen it play out in California and Vegas where. European players, and when I say Euro, I always make a joke about this. I define that as anyone who is non-Canadian and American. So South American Euro, uh, Asian Euro, whatever. Well, actually, Asians is a whole different thing. But uh, most of the time, Euros are professional <laughs> players, are professional players that come over here. And for whatever reason, the the way most, you know, some guys are nice, but a lot of times they kind of stick out like a sore thumb. Their behavior makes the game more serious. And I saw it in California, the 510 at Commerce, it was just an influx of 50 guys. Then they'd move, you know, go back. And then another six months, another 50 guys would come in. And, you know, if there's only four or five 510 games going and like 30 full-time Euro players are playing all the time, you can see, and they're all winning players, or most of them, you can see how that affects the games. I haven't seen that in Texas, um, but it could, if these guys start coming into these big games when everything opens up, uh, it could affect things. I've told some of the owners, and you laugh at this. I would suggest to them, you know, I as the, I, as the, you know, to sort of support their player base to not have that happen. Why don't you just require an American driver's license to play? They can do whatever they want. It's a membership club. You know, it's you know funny you say this, Bart, because 
a European member of a chat hit me up today and said, Hey, you're going to have a podcast with Bart, right? I said, yeah. He said, can you, can you, <laughs> I, you need to call him out for this because he, he probably won't, won't mention it, but he is recommending banning Europeans from the casinos. And I think that that's, I think that that's, you know, messed up. And I said, there's no way Bart would say that. It's just, there's, you must have the wrong guy. <laughs> just, it's too ridiculous to imagine someone saying that. I, I had to ask for proof. We had to get the documents on file. I wasn't even going to mention it because it's just so outlandish. Are you, rec- are you, are you advocating for quote? Well, maybe not quote, but are you advocating for banning European players from playing at Texas properties? No, what I'm saying is, is that if I were to give advice to an owner, I would say I have seen this scenario play out many times before where there are a lot of foreign players that come into the room, make the games a lot more serious. And a lot of your recreational players, especially in Texas, that have come from private games into these rooms now because there are dealers, they will head out. The the sort of experience for them is not entertaining. I saw it a ton in L.A. where that's how the home game scene thrived. So if I was an owner, I would seriously consider it because I'd actually have to look at my bottom line and be like, are these extra 10 to 20 guys? They're almost like unpaid props. Is this going to actually hurt my bottom line in a year from now? So that's all, that's all I'm saying. I've seen it play out, Doug, in multiple markets. So you're not saying, you're not saying we should ban them, but you're saying, what if you did might be the right play. I'm just saying that if I was an owner of the, one of these places, it's, it's not, a joking recommendation it's something to consider that's all i also like that you t- you had a little decency to consider asia not part of europe that was nice yes of you. yes well a- asia is its own thing not yeah, europe yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's where we'll draw the line okay so so wait what are we are we not going to allow asians now bart are we going to no, have no, double we, standard no here? we definitely want asians okay sure. so, so, <laughs> so you need an american driver's license or we're gonna have some ethnicity tests where where does this end no, it's but but here's the thing: like Asian players, for the most part, live here. From what I've seen, like you don't you don't see people traveling from Asia to play poker here okay. as their sole purpose, as you do mostly with a lot of these European guys. That's fair. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and if you want to keep your your uh, Texas five ten game or uh, Texas five ten, or as I like to call it, twenty five fifty. If you want to keep your twenty five fifty game good, you, you you're going to want to make sure you have gambly, loose, fun fun loving types. Um, and and I just, I just don't say, want my customers to go back underground and start playing in their own games because they don't like the experience. That I mean, that's my only point. Okay, you yeah. are you are definitely making friends with people in Europe right now. Um, <laughs> I will make sure that we have this on during great Euro hours. If you ever come back on the podcast, again. <laughs> uh, so you know it's tough. It, it's tough when I think about protecting games versus player uh, experience and. It, it it's just really tough because on one hand you want to be as inclusive as possible, mm-hmm. um, but there are definitely guys that just suck to have. I mean, if some guy shows up, doesn't speak English, has his hoodie and glasses on, yep. he's taking forty five seconds of decision. That guy just sucks to have at your table. That, that's just a shitty experience for everyone, and people will leave because of it. And honestly, it's one of the worst parts about playing high rollers. I know recreational high rollers that quit because of the influx of Germans that would come in and do that. I mean, people mm-hmm. quit. I mean, they were, I don't want to deal with this guy I've never seen before. Who's like 12 years old tanking for 17 minutes before he has his scarf wrapped face, just drop some chips out, you know, and obviously I'm exaggerating, but, but the point is people do like the social environment of poker, but then the other side of that, 
before you know it, it becomes a private game situation where eh, we like you, we don't like you. No, he's okay. No, that pro's not all right. That pro's okay. And then, and then now the pros have to, have to start schmoozing. And one of the things that I never did is I, I never did any schmoozing. I never tried to suck up the people to get any games whatsoever because I want to deal with that bullshit and I just don't like that atmosphere. So where's the healthy middle ground here between trying to protect the games from having players that really make it a lot less enjoyable for recreationals to play and then it just turns into he's okay he's not who's friends with who and then we just basically have i don't know mean girls playing out here where where he's totally allowed to play but he's not okay where are we going to cut this line where are we going to draw the line right and that's going on in vegas by the way right that's the biggest gripe is sort of private games in a public casino exactly what you're talking about where the host gets to pick you know who's in the game it's about it's not even really about say your poker skill who makes the most money it's who can get into these games right so obviously it's a balance but that example that you give with the german guy play that out over like how about not just one guy 30 guys and play it out where these guys don't have uh necessarily the common sense to just understand sort of like the the poker economy or ecosystem i saw at one time where a group of like five german guys there was one 5 10 20 game at hollywood park which is another casino in la and they all and they called up hollywood park and they all drove over in the same car the five guys and put them put their name on the list in order for one 5 10 20 game so I mean, that type of, it's just no thought, no behavior, or they just don't care because they're going to be going in and out every six months. So there's a balance, right? And, you know, it's sort of figuring out, obviously, that balance. And I know it is a problem in the other direction, like what you just talked about, what's going on in Vegas, for sure. Well, what's happening in Vegas is ridiculous. And by the way, 100% illegal. I don't know if it's still happening today, or at least it was back when I was trying to play in some of these games. But Mm. No one's going to try and sue these casinos because you're just going to get instantly banned from everything. So the downside's too high for you. But I remember when there were good games running in in um, Bobby's room, sorry, in uh, Ivy's room, where I would go and I would wait outside the room and then, you know, I would be the first on the list. And then and then I had to wait and I wait for hours and then a wreck shows up. Oh, they can add a seat to the game for that. So wreck shows up at a seat to the table. That's OK. Mm. But the first on the list, not... How is this not a private game? This is 100% a private game. Mm. I, I think if you if you played this out, I mean, they all come in together, sit down, they all leave together. They can make a seat for someone, but then not for the first on the list. I mean, this is not this is a public place. They should be public games. They're not. And I mean, this is one of the reasons why I never went down this this sort of. I never played in a home game. Uh, outside, mm. I mean, for for stakes, I played for lols and shit. But you know what I mean, like <laughs> a real 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 home game. Right. Um. I I've. I don't think I've played in any private game basically ever. I've not played in almost any high six cash games unless they were televised um, other than heads up stuff. Um, I've not, I just didn't even want to get involved in this. It's like the tournaments, it's like the games that I can just show up and play because I don't want to show up and then, you know, not be able to play, especially when it's at a public location. And I, I, I'm sorry, I'm bitching enough. Poker has been good to me. I'm not trying to complain too much about this, but this well, process just, is ridiculous. Let me just make one last comment on what you had said that you sort of noticed that Texas is casual and it's gambling and something like this. And I'm not even putting forth, you know, proposal to remedy the situation, but I will guarantee Doug that instead of now, let's say that you were in a Texas room and there were, say, like a group of 50 or 100 regular foreigners that were playing across these three or four cities. And then you went in and you observed sort of the behavior or sort of the feel of the room. You would come out with a different conclusion. Those foreigners would have affected your experience where it wouldn't seem as gambling or casual. 
I mean, that's obviously just my opinion, but I, like I said, I've seen this play out. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just putting it out there that it's, it's an issue sometimes. I like the way you're doing this. This is tactful. <laughs> you, you, you've honed your approach on the subject. If I was an owner, I would consider. Uh, (laughs) Moving on, Uh, let's let's talk about uh, the World Series of Poker this year. So, right, uh, obviously the World Series of Poker just getting underway now. Yep. Are you going to make a trip out there to play this year? I'm moving. I'm going tomorrow. I got a flight tomorrow. Nice. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for staying behind for one extra day. Join the podcast. That was kind of you. Yeah, I actually put out a tweet right before, but I didn't get to see a lot of the responses. Like for whatever reason, you know. The one thing that I want to avoid sort of in my life is uh, it's just it's a pet peeve of mine. I hate waiting in long lines, Doug. So the just the one thing that I, I don't care about. I mean, whatever. They put a vaccine mandate in. They didn't put a vaccine mandate in. I think it was probably smart of them to streamline the process. I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of irrelevant, indifferent to whether it should be there or not. I was obviously vaccinated. But my understanding is, is that. I have my vaccine card uploaded to this clear app. I want to be able to just go and register. I don't want to sit in a five hour line to show this app because why, what's the point of the app if I have to sit there in a different line? And the reason why it's coming into play for me is because I want to play the 1508 tomorrow and the reunion first day, which is this big 500 event is going on at the same time. So if I have to, I would have to battle with this gigantic field to wait in this line to show my app one time. I don't want to do that. I'll skip the event if that's what's going on. But supposedly that's not. That's an, you only have to wait in line if you pre-regged, which is like if you pay by a credit card ahead of time, which I'm not doing. So hopefully I can just show my app and it's going to be streamlined. But I've seen it all, Doug, at the World Series. So I, I don't know what's going to happen. Luckily for you, the World Series of Poker always has it together. I can't ever think of one issue that's happened there. It's always streamlined, short line. Especially when there's new especially when there's new things added too. Of course, of course. New events, new policies. This one hundred percent never seen an issue. I I, you should be totally good to go for tomorrow. Uh what what are your thoughts on the the markup police back in full force? We've seen a lot of it, it, it seems that it's just standard every year, World Series approaches few weeks before or maybe a month before people start selling packages there are some hilarious packages where the player is clearly not beating it they get called out they defend themselves and we have this battle back and forth about what they should be doing is should should be doing it are they scamming their followers what are your thoughts you know i have i'll be 100 percent honest with you i haven't really thought all that much about it i used to do a thing a couple years ago with my subscribers where i would sell a package at no markup when I knew that I could get markup from the regular market. And I was like, listen, I'm not going to pressure you guys, but I'm just going to sell pieces of myself at no markup. I I guess kind of thinking people should be able to sell at whatever they want, but I guess I can see the other side of it where these people are sort of trying to, like they think that they're, you know, the people that are over marking up are sort of scamming their followers that might not have as much knowledge. So it's their place to sort of come in and give them, give the followers some information, whether the person who is over marking up is doing something unethical. Yeah. It's probably pretty close. I mean, I kind of, I'm kind of a free market guy where I'm like, well, if there's a market and the people can buy it, but I can kind of see the other side of it where I have no problem with people calling them out. I have no problem with people overmarking up and I have no problem with people calling them out. How about that? It gets kind of weird when you have Phil Helmuth saying Mike Massau is beating these 10 Ks for 1.5. And, you know, I've talked with Mike a lot lately. 
got a good relationship with him these days, but I mm. do not think Mike is beating those the the, the 10Ks at 1.5. And then Mike feels, you know, upset that he's getting attacked for this. And then he's calling CryptoPunk scams, which is a really funny pivot, but we don't have to get into that. But um well, 1. You know, 5, what, what, does 1.5 suggest that the ROI is 150% at break even? Well, if his ROI is 50%, he's break even, right? Oh, 50%, 50%, right. not 150%. Okay, so so 2.0 would be 100%, right? Uh, yeah. I would okay. Assume, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that anyone's beating any of those 10Ks for 1.5. I mean, I think somebody went back and looked at the data too, right, from the last 10 years, and it wasn't anything approaching that. For just the mixed game ones? Yeah. Okay. I thought I, someone I had looked at it, but I mean, the other thing too is in live poker, it's such a small sample. I mean, you can find a guy over, say, three or four years that's beating, you know, these 10K mixed K games for like 300%. What about the, that English dude that won two of the 08 events from like Benny Glazer from like four or five years ago? I mean, you can hand pick a certain period of time and find somebody that, that has that ROI, but does that mean it's necessarily sustainable? Doug, I was stuck $250,000 over my lifetime for tournaments up until this monster stack. And then I cash for 350 in the monster stack. So now I'm up 100,000. Does that mean that, like, you know, it's, I mean, you know, tournaments are so top heavy. So it's kind of hard to, to look at any short period of time and get an accurate ROI. But I mean, do you think that people should be able to sell at whatever markup? Yeah, I think people should okay. be able to sell it, whatever. But I, I also think it's good to have people calling right. everyone else out when, right. when it's, it, I guess, so there's a, there's a weird arbitrary line that's not enforceable. So I don't think it should be the, the, the policy, but let's say that I know I'm not winning at 1.5 and I sell to you 1.5 and I tell you I'm definitely winning. and I know inside I'm not. Yeah. And I'm doing that just, just to get your money. That's scammy. But if I'm just kind of crazy and think I'm winning at 1.5, that's not scammy. You're just kind of crazy. And so there's a little bit of a difference there. Right. It can't really be how we, decide if it's okay or not is it does the person believe because when, when Helmuth says mike's beating these 1.5 Helmuth believes that absolutely he's not he's not just trying to get mike a little extra markup he, he believes in his in his what he's saying so um how about know, the think, guys that sell to their friends and family at a high markup would they know they're not beating the game and their friends and family know nothing about poker? I've seen that before. If you sell to your mom at a scammy <laughs> markup, then you're going in your own special elite class of degenerate that just it's just you. Was it Reno? Who else is in there? I don't know. It's, it's, it's an elite tier. Like, hey, mom, I have a great investment opportunity for you to, for, yeah. for you this week. Yeah, at the low, low price of 1.5 markup. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's crazy. I, I mean, I it's a hard, I mean, as a tournament player, who beats tournaments over the long term to make a living at it? I mean, if you're playing high rollers like a Nick Pertangelo and some of those guys, now I can totally see it. But I mean, God, it's a hard road to beat like 10% and travel. And if you're not supplementing with cash games, it's just, I, it just seems like it, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me from an hourly perspective. If you're a good poker player, why you would just play tournaments. I'm not sure out. as much what the what the landscape is like today compared to when I was playing them in mm. 14, 15, 16, um, even 17. But they were really soft. Oh, I mean, I, I, I obviously I ran incredibly hot online mm-hmm. and live in tournaments, but I just won so many of these things every time that I went and played that. And I just saw so much hilariously bad stuff. I don't know if it was because it was versus me or if it's just these are the way people play or what. But uh if you're playing for size, then I think there's definitely opportunities to make money. If you're playing at smaller stakes tournaments or 1Ks or even you know 2Ks or maybe even 3Ks, then 
it's going to be tough to offset your travel expenses, particularly in some of these locations where it's just a lot of money to get to. Like Barcelona is the best example of this. You just a lot for the flight, a lot for the hotel. Everything's expensive. Um, it's going to be hard for you to overcome that. But I mean, if you're getting, if you're getting, if you're a good poker player and you're getting a bunch of five and ten k's in, especially if they're they're you know multi hundred entries in some of these things, it's not too impossible to imagine you're beating them. And and, and as far as ten k's go for no limit events. If your field gets at least a few hundred entries and it's a 10k, you are there are going to be people beating that for one for 50 percent ROI for sure. Yep, yeah, but let's bring this back to reality out of Doug's world. I'm talking about the people that are going around and grinding the circuit events for 565, a 500 event traveling around the country with a 65 dollar buy-in. Doug, people have well, convinced the, themselves. I mean, if you're if you're doing that, then you're doing it for the love of the game. You're not doing it for the you're trying to really have a, an awesome career, are you? I mean, no, are, of course there are people that think that they're grinding it out a living at that level. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. The math doesn't work. Yeah, math doesn't work. Of yeah. course. I mean, your costs will be way lower there. So that's a, a positive. Maybe you crash to buddies. You know, maybe you drive you, around you, in van. Maybe you van life. maybe you just uh, hop in with four of your fellow austrians in one car and you save on gas. <laughs> you know, that might be the way that you get things done. I don't know. Uh, but at least for those, you you can stay at a very cheap hotel, and it's it's not that expensive to get there. So your travel isn't as much of, of a consideration. But still, you know, if you're in a five sixty five, and let's just say that it's five hundred entrants or something, let's say that you're an okay, kind of good poker player, maybe you can get twenty five percent ROI. You're looking at one hundred forty bucks. So right. you know, and that's if you're solidly above average, because there's going to be you know rake and dealer tip and all this stuff kind of factored in there too. So yeah, I mean. Most people trying to live the poker dream, I would say, I would say if you're viewing this as this is the stepping stone to me getting better and learning and improving and I'm studying hard and I, maybe I'm young, maybe I'm willing to take this risk. It's fine. But if you're thinking I'm really making it here on these 565, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. You're going to have nothing coming because eventually at some point you're going to go through even an average stretch. You're going to make no money. You're going to have nonstop expenses. And yeah, I mean, what what, what do you, what do you have at that point? So totally agree people trying to, to go that road down that path are are, are certainly not not going to have a life of luxury yeah and you and you run into the same type of thing in a high raked structured cash game like I, we were talking about in la where you just you know the, the math doesn't make sense maybe you can make 10 bucks an hour but you can't be a poker pro and live in la on 10 bucks an hour so i mean there's a lot of these different scenarios out there but i mean listen i like to play tournaments once a year at the world series i love to play omaha eight i mean no limit is my strongest game, but I've made the final table of the championship 08 event three times, you know, three times. Some of it was 10 K. Some of it was five K. And I think I've made like seven WSOP final tables, but this was the first time I finished in the top five uh, in 2019. So, you know, it's a thing that's fun to do because you don't get to play at a high level for some, a lot of these games. Like you can't play a 10 K 08 or even a 1500 08 anytime outside the, the series. So one of the unique and cool things about tournaments, particularly at the world series of poker is you get so many entries that the stakes get so big. And so you might even have a $600 tournament or a $1,000 tournament. And all of a sudden everyone at the table is playing NL 100 K deep in right. the tournament, right? Right. 501 K blinds. That's the kind of value people have behind. Yep. And so you get to play 501K against people that are a lot of times complete, completely recreational, or maybe there's a couple guys that sort of know what they're doing, but you get to play absurdly big stakes, stakes for tons of money against people that don't really know what they're doing. But then the downside is you're now 
subjecting yourself to the variance of playing NL100K. So you kind of have to be sick to, to really to really want to enter these things and, and run deep in them. Well, there's an interesting wrinkle, obviously, with the World Series this year. And I think that they've sort of continued to make better decisions about the rules because when they first came out with the way that it was going to work this year, it was just <laughs> absurd in the beginning. Like, oh, if you're unvaccinated and your contact trace to be someone that tested positive, you'll be DQ'd. But if you're vaccinated, you're not. But they, how are the people checking vaccinations? Now they have it streamlined. But here's the thing is that you are incentivized to not get tested if you get sick in a long event. Because if I enter a 10K and I'm feeling perfectly fine on day one, and then I'm moving on and I've made it to day three or God help us to the final table of a 10K, and I'm really sick, Doug, at the final table, am I going to go get tested? Because if I test positive, I'm DQ'd, right? Right. Well, I think the answer to that as a pragmatist is no. Mm-hmm. I mean, you like to think everyone's going to try and keep everyone safe, but... If if you have a hundred thousand dollars on the line, or five hundred thousand dollars on the line, or a million dollars on the line, or how much equity you have at whatever final table you're at, right? Are you really going to just punt it off to just to make sure that you don't have COVID? I mean, for right. something that, especially at, at most final tables, I mean, maybe, maybe your table makes a difference. If it was just eight young Germans in me, I'd just say fuck them. Let's <laughs> let this roll. But maybe if there's if there's a bunch of older guys, then you know maybe maybe you're no. I, I kid the Germans. I, I actually I, I have good relations with a lot of the Germans, but um, but you know maybe maybe the final table matters. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of feel that they should do. It's so tough because you could do mandatory testing mm-hmm. at final tables or something like that, but then. Now I, I hate to, get yeah, but now people are vaxxed. Well, now people are vaxxed, and you're going to be asymptomatic a lot of times if you're vaxxed. You could test positive and, ha- and not be sick at all. Are those people going to be DQ'd? What's the line where someone is forced to get tested? I don't even know if they've even con- you mean forced like at any point. So let's say someone shows the table; their their face is just oh. horrible, mucus everywhere, not coughing. They yeah. they look like a wreck. Are that is that person going to get tested? I I haven't seen anything put out about this specific mm-hmm. topic that we were saying. I haven't seen anything from the World Series. I haven't seen anything from Kev Mass saying about what is the policy going in. How are they going to approach people that look sick at the table? This is, by the way, why I think it was smart of them to have a max mandate because if we're having this conversation now it's going to happen far less frequently than if it was just an open free-for-all can you imagine vax 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 mandate yeah well i I, so i i think that the vax mandate might have been less because of keeping people safe and more because of the dealers shortage that's going on right now um but maybe maybe they're trying to make it look like they care but the reality is there's a a fairly large dealer shortage nationwide right now so i feel like it might be more based around that maybe not maybe they really care about people they wanted to reduce the numbers you mean intentionally possible it's possible. I mean, that's an interesting. That's a. I mean, that's an interesting sort of <laughs> theory. But I just think that if there was no vax mandate and we're having this conversation now about everyone being vaccinated and someone getting sick, how often was it going to happen if there was no vax mandate? Do I'm you want to hear what would probably be a very unpopular take? Sure. If you're worried about someone at your table having COVID, don't go play in the World Series of Poker. Right. I'm no. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not worried about it at all. I mean, I, oh, mean, I don't I, mean I, you. I wasn't saying you, Bart. I'm saying the proverbial you. If someone's sure, watching sure. and they're thinking, "Oh, someone at my table looks kind of sick," right? If you're gonna, if you're worried about that, just don't go play because I guarantee you, there's gonna be someone hacking it up at one of your tables at some point. And if you're sitting there wor- worried about them giving you COVID, don't play in this. That's going to happen to you. Don't so, go if you're worried about that. So, do you think that the WSOP has any responsibility to take action with someone that look from a business perspective that looks very, very sick at the table? Y- yes. 
but I don't think that they're going to. Mm-hmm. Well, let me say, I mean, realistically, uh, this is not, this is not going to be popular either. But they should probably be testing everybody, right? Everyone's going to sit, you know, a foot away from each other every day. I don't know even in, in, how in a they huge hall of tons of people. Well, I mean, this is part of the reason why they have the vax mandate and why you cannot wear masks too, because of that rule where if everyone is vaccinated. Now, I assume you know the other weird thing is that the dealers don't have to be vaccinated. I would make the well, it's because there's a shortage of them, <laughs> right? But I would make the assumption that because the dealers don't need to be vaccinated, they have to be masked. I would assume. I mean, that wouldn't right if they're not vaccinated. I assume all the dealers are going to be masked. So, I, I mean, it's. It, yeah, but I mean, the mechanics of testing everyone, like even with those rapid testings, like I said, I mean, the WSOP has everything streamlined, right? And then when you add different elements, everything goes well every single year, right? It would just it just sounds like it's an impracticality. I guess this is the worry. If we're going to have arbitrary testing, where it's just if someone looks really bad, they get tested. Well, what's really bad? And where right. do we draw the line? What if what if someone what if we're foul table in the main? Do we just let it slide? What if it's foul table in a small <laughs> one? Do we let it go? Right. I, I guess what I just want is a clear cons- a clear rule set. This is how we're doing it. And if the answer is we are not going to test people, then they should just not test people. And you, the player, need to realize that people are going to have COVID at your table sometimes. Sure. Don't go if you're worried about that. Right, right. And but the problem is they haven't put forth any statements on this. I, know, I haven't seen any guidance. I haven't seen any guidance about how they're approaching this. And the, another thing too, people said is that would famous people get special treatment too? Famous players might get special I, 100%, treatment. hundred percent. They will. Yeah. So I, I mean that, that, that just always, it always just plays out like it that. It will be interesting to see the first sort of positive test that comes back and how they're going to handle it. Cause I, like I said, I haven't seen any guidance whatsoever. I would love to have a podcast on, uh, high up at the World Series of Poker, guys. If you know anyone that could hop on the podcast, I'd love to because I would just love to ask them some of these questions. I mean, what what are you planning on doing? What what is the what are the rules here? Um, it's better that they changed it from the initial stance, I think, which was basically, hey, if you're unvaccinated, we can just kind of yank you, and if you're vaccinated, you have more sort of uh, leeway because mm-hmm. uh, that would have caused plenty of outcries. Well, this this situation does seem a little bit better, but. At the same time now, there needs to be clear rules because if there's not, you're going to have all these problems. I mean, you're going to have a lot of problems anyway, but at least you can have sort of fair ground to stand on to say that this is our rules. We're enforcing them. Well, Ty, than, Ty Stewart is the guy, right? Do you know Ty Stewart? Yeah, I know Ty. Maybe they can reach out to him. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that'd be that'd be interesting to, to hear his take on this. Yeah. Um. So what, what what's your schedule like this, this summer? What do you plan? So, no, I'm just going to play the – like I said, I plan on playing the 1500 – then I'm going to play the 10K on Monday. So the 1500.08 on Friday, 10K. I'm going to come back here for a couple of days. Then I'm going back to sort of a niche event, which is the mixed 08 the next Sunday for a 1500 and then just the main. And this will be the very first time that I haven't been there. I've been to the WSOP every single year since it started at the Rio in 2005 for the whole summer each year. So this is the first time that I'm just going in, playing an event and coming out. But my wife is seven months pregnant. By the way, I also have a, that was another thing why I'm being super careful. Like I'm going to come back and I'm going to test and sort of quarantine for a few days because, you know, if you get COVID when you're pregnant, you are at a higher risk of something bad happening. I mean, she's only 38 or whatever. Um, So, and she is vaccinated too. So, but also too, she can't be here. Like I've got a friend, you know, she's got a friend coming through and my parents are coming through. So, I mean, it's part of that. And then, uh, I don't know. I mean, if, if it's a shit show, maybe I won't go back for the main. I mean, this is day one. 
We don't even have any info about what's going on. So it'll be interesting. I mean, I think that the fields will probably be maybe 50% off, if you were to say. I mean, that's just my guess. I've seen estimates all over the place. I'm not sure. So what percentage of people, I, I don't think that you want to look at it like what percentage of people are vaccinated. That's the percentage that are going to play. Mm-hmm. Because I think that to people that the World Series of Poker is really important to, I think that they're much more likely to get vaccinated and come play. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't surprise me if numbers are a little bit higher than that. Maybe some people, I've seen this rumor everywhere. Oh, all the unvaccinated people aren't going to play. There's no value anymore. I'm not going to go play. Get it? Because they're the bad players. I've seen that take kind of everywhere. And there's truth there. But I don't know how much that would really... There's truth, but I don't know if it actually practically... Yeah. Someone would actually not go there for that reason. I mean, so you have... I don't know what... I mean, this is the way I looked at it is like, how many of the the entire people, the sort of player base is foreign that usually goes there? And if you take all them out, maybe that's like 10 or 15% maybe or foreign. Straight going after the foreigners again, Bart. No, I'm just I saying that straight for the foreigners. I'm saying that I'm assuming that most foreigners aren't going to be able to come, right? For Because there's quarantine rules. And, you know, if we just took them all out, that's 10 to 15% of the base. And then you've got maybe another 20 to 25, maybe 20% of people is that... It- is that more than 10, 15% of the base? Aren't foreigners almost half the World Series or something? A, a half? third? A no. third? A third? I, I mean, I, that would seem a really, that would seem a ton. I mean, maybe when you're talking about maybe the main event or larger events, it gets larger, but not for like a reunion type of event or most of the smaller, I think, any events that are under 5K. I guess I, I was know, thinking about the main event because if I think about yeah. the main event, I just see so many countries and flags and different names. But even, no, but it can't be 50%. I mean, I would be shocked if it was 40, over 25%. 30? I, I, I would be shocked, but, but then you've got, you know, another 20% of people that aren't going to be vaxxed that aren't going to go. And then another subset of like maybe five to 10% that are vaxxed and still aren't going to go because they don't think it's safe. And that's how I approach that 50% number, but we'll see. That makes you know? some sense. Yeah, we'll see. Are there, are there that many vax people that are going to not go because they don't think it's safe? I mean, I think that the majority of poker players are in their twenties to forties, to, to I'd say mid twenties to early forties is the primary primary poker playing age of course people play as they get older too but i can't imagine too many of the vaccinated people in that crowd if it's important to them to go play going but maybe the real casual people are just thinking i don't want to deal with this this year yeah and also too it's like it's not over the summer so there was also a discussion about how uh the world series gets max entrance because it's over the summer and people don't have to deal with like you know kit their kids and stuff like that um do you have you ever heard of the podcast called poker fraud fraud alert and todd would tell us dan druff well, I've heard of it, but but I'm not familiar with it. He he's one of the guys that is vaxxed and is not going to be playing and, and and will not go because he doesn't think it's safe. So it's a very small subset. I would tend to agree with you. Fair, yeah. Um, I I saw when we were talking about some potential topics today. You had some WSP stories from throughout <laughs> the years that you, you thought were good that you you might want to share. Is there any any stories you want to tell us today about the World Series of Poker? Well, I mean, so. In 2006, so usually the way the World Series does it now is is that you can buy into an event and not show up one time per summer. Meaning like if you bought in for a 5K and you didn't show up, I think after a certain level, they'll they'll pick you up. And then that's like your one time because I think people can angle that. They didn't used to have that rule though. And I'm pretty sure that rule is in place because of me. Because in 2006, uh, on a Monday night, I went to the cage to buy into a Thursday event, which was the 5,008 championship Omaha high low. But on Tuesday, the next day, you know, this was Monday night, there was a 5,000 no limit event. So I bought in 
registered for the 5k, you know, for Thursday, uh, went to bed. Then, you know, we had a cookout or something on Tuesday. I was chilling out and then I pulled the ticket out of my bag on Tuesday night and it said 5k, no limit on it. So the, the cage had bought me in the lady at the cage had actually registered for the 5k, no limit. Cause that's what everybody was buying in line for. Never saw it. Obviously didn't register. Didn't look at the ticket. They blinded me off $5,000 down the toilet. Didn't get picked up. That was it. They blinded $5,000 off. They claimed that they tried to get in touch with me, that they announced my name over the loudspeaker a couple of times, but that was it. Down the toilet. Wrecked. But what, yeah. why, would th- why would that have caused a change in the rules? Well, because they didn't want that to happen again. You know what I mean? Like they, I think they wanted to account for someone not someone already buying in for an event and for some reason they got into a car accident right on the way or some emergency happened and it's reasonable that you might allow one emergency and have your stack picked up one time i I feel like over the summer now if you want to go deep down the angling route you could save that for the main event and uh not like your opening table and and just don't sit down or you could just not sit down at some event over the summertime as an angle, I guess, like if you're playing like the 25k six max, Doug, and you're like, oh, it's going to be about table draw here, uh, you know, and I'm not going to like my event, you know, if I don't like the table, I just won't show up. So, I mean, I guess it could be angled. I don't know if it's in play for all of the events, but well, well I didn't know about that rule, and and no one else did either until now. So, any angling <laughs> is really that's your fault. I mean, Bart, hold on, <laughs> they made the rule because of you, and then you told everyone about how to angle with it. This is, I mean. This is not some secret that this rule is around, by the way. Oh, and also, too, though, if you do play in these sort of mega reentry events like the Colossus, the Reunion, they have different rules for that. You can buy in for if it's been like if it's going to be this year like it has in the past, you can buy in for all of your reentries ahead of time. And that makes a lot of sense. And then you don't show up and they just pick you up because you don't want to get knocked out and then have to wait again in a four hour line to reentry the reunion so you can buy all your re-entries ahead of time and not show up and they'll pick you up that doesn't that's a different thing different I don't know, man it's called the reunion you see all your friends in the line you go you hug it out or <laughs> sorry you, you, you touch feet or whatever the covid appropriate response is yeah, yeah i mean and the other thing too in 2007 uh i made a final table uh, at the no uh, 2007 it was actually on espn it was still around the poker boom with alex jacob people know from jeopardy fame he got second in that event and that was the year back where all American Davis, like in the back of the Rio back there, there was a, there were tables out there, Doug in a tent, they put a tent up and there were probably five to 10 tables out there. And it was a fucking disaster. They had like a huge commercial, like air conditioning unit inside. If you can picture that and part of the tent collapsed and the entire time we were playing out there, it's windy out there too. If you ever walk back out there, it's really super windy. It was unbelievable and i played all of day two out there uh in that tent with it you know we didn't know oh. if the tent was going to collapse and oh, you know were on playing top of poker us. in the tent we had yeah doug there were five to ten, it was there were tables in the tent that's where your assignment was in the tent i knew about the kitchen but i didn't know about the tent that was that, they changed it the next year to be the poker kitchen but in 2007 there were active tournament tables in the tent out there wow yeah wow well, you know, whatever it takes to squeeze a few extra people in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's really what this is about. Uh, all right. Uh, changing gears here. Uh, I, we were talking earlier. You said that you've done, I believe, 13 straight years of podcasting. Is that correct? Yeah. I, straight? Yeah, I started in uh, 
at the end of 2007 with a project called Poker Road, which I don't even, this might predate you. Joe Seabock, do you know that name? Joe Seabock? You don't even know that Ultimate Bet? Ultimate Bet? Yeah, I mean, that's probably where you know. You don't know the whole math is idiotic thing with Ike. I knew about the Barry Greenstein math is idiotic on high stakes poker. So he was making a joke about that incident with his stepson, Joe and Ike back in 2007. Anyways, they started this thing called Poker Road back in 2007. And I was sort of the, the head guy. I mean, I was doing their regular podcast. I wasn't really the perfect fit for that. And then I did a cash game podcast in 2008, where I got a lot of like really interesting interviews with like Durr, top guys at the time, AE Jones, Cole South, Oh, nice. uh, Brian Townsend talking about cash games in 2008 um, for their site. And then I basically went off on my own and I worked for a now, I think it's a now a defunct training site called Deuces Cracked, which was in line, you know, one of the competitors to yeah. card runners. So I worked for Deuces Cracked for, I don't know, four years. And then I started my own thing. But yeah, I mean, I've done a podcast every single week since at least October of 2007, I would say. At least were, they, were they even called podcasts back then? Yeah, they were called podcasts. And I was actually thinking that you might bring this up because someone had said, wow, Bart, were you like the first poker podcaster? And I knew I wasn't. There was a podcast called the, it was a card player podcast with Scott Huff and Joe Stapleton called, I think it was called The Wire or something like that. Poker Wire. I can't remember, but um, that was the first poker podcast, but it wasn't a thing like it is now. You know what I mean? Well, you're like, de- yeah, you're definitely yeah. the longest running podcaster because I don't think those guys are in the game anymore. No, they're not. No, those guys definitely aren't in the game. But um, yeah, it's just become a part of my regular life. Like I just know that, and I rarely even do the stuff in advance. Even when I'm going for a trip, too, I, I kind of tend to just like to record it on a weekly basis. Occasionally, I might do it in advance, but I just know that I'm doing a podcast every single week or several podcasts a week as a part of my life. It's been 13 years and it's just a regular thing for me. You know what I mean? You know that how important it is really to put out regular content. And I wish you the best with, you know, the YouTube stuff for whatever reason, I've sort of gone down the weeds and what YouTube analytics, I helped TCH build their channel a little bit. I've been quite active with my own, you know, crush Live poker channel. And, um, just through whatever reason, I know a lot about YouTube analytics. And, you know, it's definitely interesting. And I would also say about YouTube, since they added mid-rolls, I would say back last summer, it can be very, very profitable where before, I don't think the RPM was anywhere near what it is now. And I mean by RPM is dollars per thousand views. So usually in the poker space, I'd say it's anywhere from seven to nine. So if you had 100,000 views in a in poker RPM, you know, that would be 700 to $900. You can oh, play my, that out. My viewers must be less valuable. Sorry, guys. Hate to break it to you. We're not getting anywhere near seven to nine. I haven't checked in the last few months or something. So yeah, I mean, I mean it might have changed or maybe you don't have mid-rolls on. I mean, that's that's Possible. that's the key, the mid-roll ads. But I got to start mid-rolling, you guys. <laughs> the point is, <laughs> is that you can make a fa- I mean, if you take a look at uh, like a guy like Brad Owen, hey, play that out. He's got four million views a month right at that rate so and then there's rampage at like 1.5 and you know these guys kicking around at 500,000 500,000 to a million but before the last couple of years this was never a thing you know it was never really a thing that you know a live stream could make 10,000 a month in, in youtube revenue so it's relatively new yeah i mean the it's completely changed the landscape and, and the ability to you know, support yourself and and be able to make money through your content is what, what has kind of given rise to sort of a new generation of uh, content creators that didn't exist before. When I got into the content game, I had zero aspirations of trying to make money from it in terms of direct monetization. It was just, hey, I'm starting up swing. 
I need to promote the site. I need to promote me and my brand. Let's make some content and sure. just see how many people I can kind of bring in with that. Um, and I mean, by the time I, I would say the last year or two, I've not been nearly as gung ho. I mean, at the start, I was doing a video every day, but I think over the lifetime of my poker channel, I think I, the revenue is probably 250,000. Um, well, you got screwed. over the course of, you over got the screwed course by of, the timing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's whatever. I'm not, it, yeah, it, yeah. it, it went, it went fine. I, I was swing, I was swing to grade. It, sure, it worked sure. out. <laughs> but, but I mean, I net lost on YouTube when you consider it my cost of people to, to work for me. And sure. I net lost on all of the content that I made. So, right. And, yeah. and I mean, it goes back to the same thing. Like you're driving a product, which was really the whole point. Right. So it, it, you really net one in the long term. You're just yeah. Talking about the I YouTube. guess I should say I net one, but I meant, I meant specifically if you look at cost to produce the YouTube sure. content. And then direct pay I got from YouTube, right. direct monetization I lost. But then if you consider right. the business side, obviously I, right. I did win. So, but but I'm saying that when you made those videos that got a lot of views, I bet like the RPM was like two or three, and now it's like eight to nine. So it's it's, it's changed quite a bit since you were very very active on there. Yeah, it was under two at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Again, I just me. I I actually don't think anything's changed. I just think my audience, you know, you get not. I got to stop making fun of my audience. I appreciate <laughs> you guys. And by the way, subscribe to the channel. We'd love to have you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, yeah, no, that that has changed tremendously. I mean, also, it's been interesting with with YouTube uh poker stuff because I like to feel that me and Thomas, seriously serious, my my editor, um, he edited all my videos, packaged them, he thumbnailed a lot. We worked a lot on a lot of the stuff together, formatting and everything. I like to think that we really pioneered a lot of the strategy in the poker space in terms of YouTube clip, uh, thumbnails and the way people package. Um, we were kind of way ahead of the game when we started back in 16, 17, but with actually even thinking about it, I mean, I remember looking at some of the thumbnails people had that were just terrible. They were just stuff that you would never, ever click on. It was like people weren't thinking about you're trying to get people in the door. Yep. And there's this game that you have to play where it's, it's really just what's going to get people into this video the most often. And there's almost two separate parts of YouTube. It's the first section is how do I get someone through the door? And the second thing is how do I make the content as captivating as possible? And you want to, you want to make both as good as you can. That doesn't make people feel they were misled. That's, that's really the the goal. So you don't want, you want to be something people will click on, but you don't want to be pure clickbait where you're switching out for something else. So that's why with titling and packaging, sometimes you have to package in a way that, you know, might be a little bit, Maybe not super direct. For example, with this podcast, a lot of people. By the way, me, I saw that I, my name didn't make it in the titling as an example for this. Well, we had package. To, <laughs> I, I, I was trying to I was trying to bring in some people to watch, so I didn't want to include. No, I'm just kidding. I saw. I you also saw that. you guys switch out the. I don't remember what's her name. Alexandria, the the uh, girl, the po- the who plays chess. What was her name from a few weeks? Alexandra ago? Alexandra Botez, Yeah. Yeah. So she was in the thumb, and then you guys switched her out for like Magnus Carlson. Well, it's weird because I I, I so. I thought that audiences would be a little more direct with with fan base. So mm-hmm. I thought people that had a lot of followers would have bigger audiences and people sure. without wouldn't. And that has not been the case so far. Um, there's been some obvious ones, like the Negrano podcast did really well. Of course, people are going to watch that. Sure, of course. Um, oh, you just lagged out. Oh, no, you're back. Um, there's been some ones that were kind of obviously going to succeed. And I wouldn't say that there's zero uh, crossover between the two. Um, but... It's been a lot less direct of a correlation between the audience follower size of my guest and the the size of the podcast. Now, it's also a little bit different because we're, when we do these, we're live on Twitch. A lot of times we're live on Facebook. We're live on YouTube. 
And then we're also posting these on Spotify and iTunes and, and a couple other platforms, I think, as well. So it can be misleading if you just go on YouTube and see how many viewers had, we had to podcast. But I mean, we're averaging pretty solidly 50,000-ish po- uh, views per podcast. So I mean, I, I've been, I've been you know, thrilled with the reception out of the gate. It's been great. But with YouTube specifically, if I just name every podcast, podcast with X guest, it's just not going to, it's not going to move the needle for a lot of people. And even sometimes with people that you think that it would move the needle for, um, there are some exceptions. I, I think, so for example, with Garrett, we added him into it because people just want to hear from Garrett because he's so sure. rarely in front of the camera that that kind of sure. is the draw. Right. Or if I have Negranu on, it's just, you know, with our history and everything. Or if I, if I got, let's just say hypothetically Phil Ivy, that would be strong. Oh, but, absolutely. But there, there are a lot of times you, you have to package more around the subject. And a good example of that was I had Olivier Bousquet on, on the, I think the second podcast or so on this channel. And it was, it, it was about cheating in poker and it got around a hundred thousand views. If I had packaged that conversation with Olivier Bousquet, there's no chance on YouTube it would have succeeded like that. So right. it's tough because as the host, you don't want to, you know, cite your guests and say, Hey, it's more popular to talk about subject than you. But the reality is I'm trying to get my content in front of the most people uh, it's not in, in an offensive kind of way. I just want this to succeed so people can see what we're doing and, and people can hear you talk today. It's not It's not that I'm trying to just play favorites on who I want to have their face on or not. There, there is real tactics behind what you choose to what you choose to show. No, absolutely. And I can give you some empirical you know, evidence of this too, because I do a live call-in show and we put up you know, three videos a week. And, you know, there are some calls that are better than others, Doug, but like they're it's it's you know, they're pretty much all the same, like in terms of, but if I package one. Well, I might get 50,000 views and I might have another call that's actually a better call. If it's packaged poorly, it might not get 10,000. It's all about the thumbnail. And the thing that I realized too with the YouTube YouTube algorithm is, is that the first impressions get served up mostly to your subscribers. And then from that point, the, the, if those subscribers are clicking on like um, the impressions, like a sort of a first click through rate of the first hour, then it starts to get served to more people outside your subscriber base. So really, if you get into the weeds and you want to do like A-B testing, like the very first five minutes, you have high-performing videos, have it graphed out on five-minute segments up to 60 minutes, low-performing ones, and then you sit there and you look at it for the first hour, for the first 30 minutes, and then you might switch the packaging. I mean, that's really how... I mean, I don't go that far, but... It, the packaging for some of this stuff is just so critical and a lot of people don't realize that you know yeah we've made some packaging changes where things went badly the other thing is uh so with thomas we would work together on all of the packaging but if it was just i wasn't there he would just do it himself and, and, and he created all the packages a lot of times he'd say what do you guys think about this one we go back and forth once in a while thomas would get a little bit too aggressive on some packaging <laughs> and then he would post it and then I would be doing whatever. And then a few hours later, I'd see all these notifications. And then I'd be like, oh, this is clickbait. Ah, I'm so angry. And I'd click on it. I'd be, ooh, maybe it's a little over the line. I don't know. And then all of a sudden, my name's on it. Um, but I also didn't want to micromanage Thomas because he's just so good at, at what he does. I, I I don't like to try and micromanage people, you know. And and usually, we just roll with whatever. Once once in a blue moon, someone on my team will do something. And, um, you know, I'll have to I'll have to step in and and, and defend defend my brand or whatever um well i i remember specifically an instance where um you know basically man, maybe the story is not so good to tell <laughs> um whatever, I'll, I'll tell it anyway so it, a lot of times whenever i do content and there are women there, there are women involved people will insult women just for being women i mean it's horrible but it's the reality of, of male-driven audiences 
Um, but one of the things is, as a channel, we don't we don't we don't make statements to protect people. So if someone in the chat says Bart is ugly, I'm not going to go through and delete all the Bart is ugly, sure. or, or you know, or whatever it is. And someone on my team, um, there was a video about a girl, and they got kind of upset about some of the contents. I mean, and people were saying some pretty horrible things. So the, the people were animals. Um, and then someone on my team reached out and said, oh, we're sorry about that. We're going to monitor and make sure that we're not anyone's posting any mean things. And I, I was like, dude, we are not doing that. Like, I'm not I'm not going to be the, the, the cop that goes through and make sure there's no mean stuff. Um, so, you know, some, once in a while, mistakes will, will be made. But you have to have a team that you trust. And I mean, the guys that have worked on, on my channel, worked with me, they've I mean, I, this, I have one story. I have a couple of stories over five years where mistakes were made. I mean, these guys have done such a great job that. Um, you know, I'm I'm really happy with with the team that I've had working with me. So, yeah, and I'm not sure. Happen. I'm not sure if you're aware, but Thomas actually has worked for me or with me the last six months. Um, not right now because he's moved on to another project. But I have experience with him, and he's great. Of course, seriously serious is what we were talking about. But just one last thing on this too. You know, I had recorded two quick hands with Brad Owen from my couch here in Austin. One had a good thumbnail and packaging and got 130,000 views. What? identical you know same quality of hands the other just had a screenshot of him on my couch and it got ten thousand. so it, it is all about that first well i mean there thing. was no cards in that one right no cards in the thumbnail uh there were we don't usually use cards in our thumbnails oh. really yeah ouch you hate to you hate to, you hate to hear it <laughs> so you're telling me you make content hold me right this down, and there's no pocket aces in the thumbnail not not usually not usually Ooh. no <laughs> well, let me up your game right now <laughs> people like pocket aces and people like sets i so so on my channel my most popular video ever was the possible video that i did covering that saga um yeah and you know it's a little circle arrow he's cheating on in his lap allegedly cheating in with his phone in his lap oh i remember that one yeah uh but then most i think five of my top 10 most popular videos ever are just people flopping sets me flopping a set someone else flopping a set Set yeah. flopping is real, real, real popular on YouTube. So I'd recommend pocket aces and flopping sets and and cheaters. Those are the and then the Olivier Busquet one was about cheating 100k views. I think we might be onto something here, Bart. Yeah, no, I mean, P, P you want to draw people in that aren't necessarily a part of the book or audience. I just want to ask you one quick thing too about the the possible thing. I didn't even want to go down this road, but I was thinking about this with chess when you had um, your guest on here and, uh, you know, everybody knows the whole story. You know, if you had like a chess tournament that was like an open, right? Like U.S. open chess tournament and somebody was like a 1500 rated, right? And somehow like he went and beat all the grandmasters to the end, like, you know, beat all these guys that were in the 2500s. And all the guys that that he, this guy played thought that the guy somehow was having computer aid, that he was cheating, even though they were playing chess in front of me. It's just like, I can't, this guy must have been cheating. So then the Federation goes and says, all right, we're going to have the top 100 chess players analyze the games. We're going to take a look at the games. So they have the test top 100 and all 100 come back and say, we looked at the moves and we all think he's cheating. Would that not be damning evidence that the chess player was cheating? Are we talking about in the court of public opinion or in the court of law? I don't, I don't care. No, not I, that's the whole argument of the court of law. I don't care about the court of law. I'm just well, I'm the just court saying. of public opinion for sure. Everyone okay. knows that's a scumbag. Okay. hundred okay. percent. I mean, yeah. th there's just no argument there really. Uh, if all of the experts agree that this guy was cheating, okay. then the average so you are on like, board with me that if all the experts agree he's cheating, that is very strong evidence that in the court that should be taken into the court of public opinion. I don't know why sometimes I go down this route with people who I think might be just trolling me saying, there's no evidence that he's, and I'm like, I don't care about the court. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Well, when <laughs> someone says there's no evidence, what they mean is there's no smoking gun. There's no right, right. There's no. It, you have to go from point A to point B to point C rather than point A to point C, right? Where it's okay. So here's what he did. Here are things that happened that are impossible that couldn't happen unless he knows. Right. He's cheating. It can't be here. He is cheating. That's cheating. There's an extra step there. And for some people, that's not evidence. Mm-hmm. The problem is uh, the, the, re- the real problem is some people are just so stupid that it's unless you show him cheating, as in he was there cheating, they're not going to believe anything. In fact, some people nowadays, you can show them things that did happen and they won't believe it. You know, this is where we're at in society now. You can't believe anything you see. You can't believe anything you hear. You can't believe anything anyone says. Were you so, super active when the pot ripper thing went down or was that before your time with Ultimate? That was before my time, but I, I did a fair amount of reading on it. I saw the graphs. I saw the outlier of where pot ripper was. Because, um, I mean, that was based upon the hands too, right? I mean, you have a situation where, you, let's say, for example, you have a situation where someone's playing online poker and a guy plays all his hands and somehow you get the hand histories. He wins this tournament, and I know this didn't happen this extreme, but let's just say that the only hand the guy folded the entire tournament was when he was dealt pocket kings and the guy to his left was dealt pocket aces. Wouldn't that be damning evidence? So I kind of look at that as a parallel. Where's the, we, where, oh, sorry, not to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no I kind of look at that as a parallel. I'm saying the only fo- hand that he folded the entire tournament was when he was dealt kings and the guy to his left had aces. And he played every other hand, and you could know, you just knew by the way that he played that he could see the cards, right? He was super using. So I kind of look at that as a parallel here. Um, right, but, most, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna make a dick comment as if people would say, right? But where's the cheating? Oh, right, right, because there's no evidence that he can see it. Right, right there was no yeah. evidence. So there, where yeah. was the cheating? Right, right. I'm looking right. for the cheating, not the right. your conjecture. Right. Where's on the this, you know? where's the IP logs from the uh, Stones uh, you know, Wi-Fi? All I'm saying is. 7-Eleven was a part-time job. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, I mean, clearly, I think people can formulate their own opinions, and most people will look at what happened and come to that conclusion. But there are there are holdouts, even in the even in Postal Gate. There's one percent of people that think Postal was innocent, and he's just it's just all he was just the best player ever, and people are just jelly haters and or don't have any evidence. I've seen a bunch of those people. I don't think there's any. I don't think there's a single winning poker player that thinks he's innocent. I put that out like six months ago on Twitter. I mean, there might be people that play poker that are not winning players that don't understand it, and by definition, they're not winning players. I have not ever seen a single winning poker player that okay. think he's out the cards. I'm on board with that. I don't think yeah. I've seen that either. Yeah. This leads me into a subject that I want to talk about. I wasn't going to talk about today, but Ray, as you joined, I was talking with Mike about it, and I just think it's a good topic because it just happens so much in poker. But I want to talk about uh, scams in poker. We're talking about Apostle. Okay. And sort of the burnout that you get on dealing with just the pure number of scams. Because I, I guess I'll just give a little backstory for how I feel about this, which is I've just done I've done really my best in my career to out people when it's necessary and to cover stories to protect people and even in crypto i helped warn people about scams that i saw and how to secure your assets and then in poker when people did stuff that was unethical and try to bring it to the forefront and i've really consistently made it a, a core part of, of my identity to try and protect people and out scammers and make it um, make the community as ethical or help help enforce sort of a, uh, the moral ethics of the community and the way that we should operate. And I just start to feel more and more as I move along, as I get older, I start to feel more and more jaded and burnt out about all of the scams that go on and all of the stories that go on. And in my most recent podcast, I talked about party poker and Rob Young, 
how a recent thread showed that regulars weren't getting a fair distribution of buttons and cutoffs. And a lot of people hit me up about it. And I I didn't really have the time to read through and check about this thread and check the buttons and the cutoffs. I'm doing a bunch of stuff. So I forwarded it to Rob Young because I figure we might as well send this to the person that's really in charge here that can help solve the problem. Rob takes a lot of time explaining his thoughts here on what exactly was going on, the, the research they're doing, and kind of breaking it down. And at this point, I feel like I've sort of done my job. I got to Rob. It's in front of him. He can sort of take it from here. And Rob has shown a lot of care in, in how he's handling this and trying to fix the issue. And then today, we, we fired up the podcast and some guys in the chat, you know, Doug, how dare you after they're scamming people, you come out and you support party poker. They're scammers, Doug. You're a scammer. It's all a scam. Okay, guys, look. I've done my absolute fucking best <laughs> to try and protect people. I really have, but I cannot be on top of every single scam, every single story. I can get it in front of the right people. Lord knows I've tried to, and maybe Barty Booker is scamming people. I don't think that they are. I, I've not researched this closely enough to know exactly, but what I can promise you is that Rob Young is actively involved in trying to fix this. And I did my part to try and help this story reach the, its logical destination and conclusion. But where I'm driving all of this, uh, this rant is I feel kind of burnt out because even when I try to help on this thing that I did not care much about at all, if, if regs are getting enough cutoffs at this point in my career, I have so many things going on and I still get berated for not aggressively fighting against the scams enough. There is just there are just so many things happening in poker that it just feels hard to care about every single one of them. What are your thoughts? This is why I'm looking forward to fatherhood. I really think that once I have a kid, I'm just going to be like, it's going to bring out what I think is important in life. I mean, I have some similar things too. I mean, for you know, people who talk about like live stream security and some of the you know the shows that I commentate and what am I doing to make it secure? I'm like, dude, I'm just commentating like one time a month. You know what I mean? I wouldn't be a part of it if I think that there's, there's something going on, but I just think that you know, having a kid is going to just allow me to filter a lot of this stuff out. By the way, I don't know the story you're talking about. Are you talking about like in a rush format that regs are not getting getting moved I to the cutoff so. on the button enough? I think so. Is that correct. what it is? Okay. So I rush so. meaning that you're just moving tables and they're not getting enough cutups. Um, oh, that's kind of interesting. As opposed to like them not getting, you know, dealt the right distribution of good hands in the cutoff, which would be I an RNG issue. But something to do with the way that when a new player joins versus an existing player is in uh -huh. the pool, the way that it was being distributed. Yeah. I think, oh, but I, I can promise you guys yeah. that Rob Young is on it. That's <laughs> like, all I can say. Yeah, like zone or rush. I don't know. I mean, you've been around the industry long enough to. It, it's just like sometimes when you're in a in a you know you're a public face and you're a public figure, people expect. And, and and I you know I try to respond to a lot of people on social media. Try to respond to all my emails. Say hi to people when they come up to me in real life. But sometimes people have to take a step back and realize that. You know, a guy like Doug, more so than even me, could get influxed by a lot of different messages. The fact that he might not respond or, or might not see one, you shouldn't take it personally. And at least here, you actually stepped up and did, you went the extra step, right? What makes else, more what tilting. more can you do? You know, yeah, it makes it even more tilting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, no, I, I, well, I appreciate that. But it, it's just, I, I just feel like sometimes the pure amount of shitty stuff that happens makes you kind of jaded. I've and, been really, really lucky with that, though, because I was never super active. I, I remember you, I think you were talking to Manasau about how you never loan money. And I've never loaned money to anybody either. I have actually never been scammed in poker, knock on wood. I know that you had that story about how you, you didn't really loan money to, what was it, Yukon Brad Booth. You sort of got, a know, trade. Some, yeah, a trade. But um, because I didn't play like a ton online post, I would say Black Friday, 
where I think a lot of the sort of shadiness came out as the games got tougher. Remember, if you were a regular and you're making a living and maybe you were just okay, and now all of a sudden like Black Friday happens and, you know, 70 or 80% of the player pool disappears and most of that player pool were wrecked players. Now you can't beat the games. You're almost like in survival mode. So you see these people turning to these things where, well, is it a scam maybe like a little bit. And then you see these stables, Doug, like where, you know, you're a part of a stable and you might be soft playing another guy in the stable or you're swapping or how about you go in and you play against Guy Liberté, right? Three-handed on rail heaven on full tilt, like at 1K, 2K. And then you contact the other guy that's playing with you and you say, hey, let's chop it up. You know you know what I mean? I mean, it, that, that I always felt like was a little bit unethical, but there are a lot of scams and stuff going on online. There's a lot of scams that go on live. Most of the scams that go on live, though, just have to do with borrowing. And, I, you know, I, I feel like it's easier to cheat online than it is live. It's, it's usually know? unethical to do that, to say, yeah. let's chop up this guy's action here and just me and you will split yeah. it. And then whatever this guy has. I mean, because then you play different and you have to you right. get to play exactly. knowing that if that guy wins, you're winning part of it. And so you're, you're, you're colluding. I mean, you're colluding. It's basically what happened deep in that tournament with uh, Alex Foxen and Kristen Bicknell, where they had a huge swap of each other and they're playing against the third guy and they're dating or engaged or whatever. And really messed up situation to get three hand in a tournament where two people are, are a couple, but then they also have a huge swap with each other. And then they play some questionable hands versus each other where they're essentially, I mean, they're not chopping it up, but they have such a huge swap that, I mean, that's it's basically collusion at that point against the third party. But didn't so, they make a point, though, to bring that out before it was three handed and try to propose a deal to the guy and say, listen, like, here's the situation. Chop with us. That that was my understanding. I'm, I'm just and the guy didn't take the deal. Right. Which was a mistake on his part, for sure. Yeah. 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 But I don't think they also told him that they had such huge p- pieces of each other. I think that it was he assumed that they had their own action or most of their action or whatever, or a majority of their own action. And then afterwards, it came out that they had significant swaps in each other. I mean, wouldn't you just assume, though? I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe, I mean, I, I guess I've seen girlfriend boyfriend relationships where they don't have a, a, ton, chun, a, ton, a chunk of each other's action. But w- what about people that make the final table of any event? Like, let's say a guy is like the owner of a stable and one of his horses is at the final table of like a 5K at the WSOP and he's got 50% of them and they're down to six handed. Like, should that be divulged? And it would be kind of hard to enforce. Good question. I I mean, you know, it's just like, because I mean, obviously that's going to affect the way that they play. People can collude and soft play against each other. And I guess you could say it's a form of cheating by best handing and not even have the intention of doing so in the sense that, if you have someone else's action or you have a swap and you are not three betting out of the small blind against his button range at the right frequency, because you guys have a piece of each other or your friends or whatever. And the guy in the big blind picks up pocket aces or pocket Kings. He loses out on that equity because you were not playing the correct range. And a lot of times you'll see this too. I, I know a guy in security at a site where they'll, they can kind of figure out based upon if, two guys are working with each other just to based upon their three bet stats out of certain positions when they're involved in hands with each other. So somebody can meet, not even have the intention of cheating. And it sort of is through best handing and things like that, you know? Yeah. But I don't know if this is a problem of online versus live necessarily when you say that, because when you said that before, because I think that this is happening in both. I think that the five Germans in the vehicle together are probably chopping up some action. I think that, you know deep in these tournaments there are people that are doing that i think that Mm -hmm. when you play um 
you know, in the high roller scene, people are swapping all the time, which is okay to swap. But then what, what's the limit on when, how much is too much to swap? Right. And, you know, wh- where, where are we going to enforce, enforce that? Um, I just think it's much easier to cheat online, like in the sense of I'm going to play on a different IP connection, Doug, and I'm going to tell you what I hold in five card PLO. And you're going to tell me what you hold. And that can't really be done live. That's what I was kind of going with. Sure. That's fair. Yeah. That's definitely yeah. true. Because you see that way, because you see those games on a lot of these agent apps, five card PLO high, and it's like Jesus. Like, I accidentally went on to one of these apps where my, I don't know, one of my connections was like my iPad was on my Wi-Fi, but like I had my phone not on my regular data, and I had multi, and I had a couple of different accounts, and I was able to sit with myself on the other account on my phone. So I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, playing two accounts on the same table by accident. You know, you can look at that. What about in a five-card PLO game? How much information that is if you know somebody else's hand? I mean, even in No Limit, it's yeah, ridiculous right, knowing right. two cards. I, I mean, you know two cards. You're, yeah, but you're I chilling. Mean, play it out with five cards, though. Shit. E- even worse in five-card. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, these these things, certainly that aspect is a lot easier to do online, but there's going to be, sc- uh, you know, scummy stuff in all of the, these situations. And, uh it's it, it, it's hard to just i feel now i'm at the point where when truly terrible things happen i step in and try and say something if someone if if sites are scamming people things like that but then i i just i feel so burnt out on outing scammers and it's you know am i going to be am i going to be 68 years old and and on on 888 poker there's not enough hijacks for the regulars, I just can't. I, I, well, I it's like no you're you're also that. doing this out of the. You're sort of doing it for the community, almost like pro bono. You have you are under no obligation to do so. You see what I'm saying? Like you've done a lot, and I think people have to realize that whatever you do is above and beyond. You have no obligation to get involved when right, someone says. Right, but the thing is, you know what? You know why it bothers me, Bart? It's because I do care. That's the sad thing about this whole thing is that the reason that I, it upsets me this stuff happens is because I do care, mm-hmm. and I kind of wish I could help protect people, but I just I, I can't be there for everything. It, just, it right. can't take so much time. I and yeah. I'm kind of talking in circles, but if it didn't, if I didn't care, I probably wouldn't give a fuck, right? I mean, it's, no, it's I get a, it. I get it. No, I, don't, like I no, I get it. Yeah. Let's let's grab a couple last subjects here before we got to run. Sure. Um, so. You were fairly outspoken with how much money you bet on the last presidential election. Yep. Uh, I believe pre and post election. Do you want to talk about your experiences <laughs> uh, with the last presidential election? Yeah. So I bet a lot pre election. I made a huge mistake because I know that we're a little bit limited time. And what I would do over again is I would keep, I would probably not bet before the election and keep almost entirely the amount that I wanted to bet liquid for the day of the election. What we saw was sort of the misinterpretation of early results. And I was on a live stream, Market Mania, when we were doing this. And, um, you know, a few hours in, if you remember, Trump got up to like minus 600 and everybody was freaking out. I had done sort of a pre-show with them. Then they called me back because I knew a lot about, I'd done a lot of research because I put a lot of money down in individual states, which ended up being a waste of time. I had thought going in, oh, I'm going to bet on all these different states. It's going to be like, Running it like running it ten times, like in a big pod, it's going to decrease my variance. When in fact, just actually betting on the national probably does that, and it's a little bit softer too. Also, you can't the way that political uh, betting works is that states are correlated, so it's not like oh, fifty percent here, fifty percent there means that you have a one in a four chance. No, they're correlated together. So there's a lot of intricacies, but 
when I saw that Trump had gone up to minus 600 after he was, it was obvious that he was winning the South, although he didn't win Georgia. So that turned, I thought the odds really should be even. And it was crazy at that time. You could have gotten Biden at plus 250 plus 300. And it had to do with the way that the votes were counted, the order of the mail-ins in the North versus live votes in the South. And I had kept saying, I'm like, I know these key counties, Maricopa and Arizona, some other counties, there was no evidence that he was going to really lose Michigan, Wisconsin, which were correlated. I'm like, this math doesn't add up to me. This is a flip. This is more like a flip. Trump should not be a four to one favorite at this point right now. So when you look at that and that is where the edge is, I think what I would do next time is try to find out the best sources of real time count information uh, day of election and keep all my Bitcoin or whatever liquid and probably make those bets uh, as the tallies came in. I think is the best thing. Now the post-election thing is just a ridiculous, right? It, I mean, it, was, it was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I wrote down uh, correlation uh, as you were saying that, and then you said correlated six uh, times. So I had to scratch out my note. Yeah, I, I, I agree. The, the betting a ton before the election, when you look at the way the market shifted that night, it feels like it's better to have more in play. If you're yeah. getting a tiny edge before the election, yeah, the inefficiencies in the market the night of are yeah. are are much more profitable. But that said. I remember having swept both elections, having money on both elections, both times I bet on the Democrat. Um, it felt eerily similar to 2016 Absolutely. when we came in. All right. The math says Biden. The polls say Biden. Everyone smart that I know is betting Biden. Biden. Right. Okay. Biden. Okay. It's getting worse for him. Okay. Trump's bringing up. Trump, 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 Trump. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, God, it's happening again. It, it felt exactly the same. And of course, it was remarkably different because we had all of the rigged ba- or the late ballots that we were going to have uh, <laughs> flown in. Um, but obviously, those were going to come in later, so it, it was different. But it, it had those same vibes, and I think that's why that line got pushed up so high towards Trump. I mean, I don't want. I mean, uh, whatever. Giving away my secrets, I do that with poker. And I, you, 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 you could go a lot. You can really go, I think, down uh, with a lot of variables next time where you figure out the order of the count and the state and how they are counting the in-person versus the mail-in, because those are going to be the first results that are going to be displayed. And that's going to shift the line. And that's really what happened. That was the big difference between 2020 and 2016. I mean, obviously there were mail-ins in 2016, but nothing like it was this year. And the the thing that kind of pissed me off was that I had already know I sort of knew this, like Nate Silver had been talking about this on his podcast, that this might play out in this scenario and I was angry after the fact because I was like, I should have figured this out ahead of time and had like a bunch of liquid capital like fire on the day of. But it wasn't just with individuals, Doug, that I bet after the election. I bet on a site called Polymarket, which was like a predictive site that kind of was trying to compete against um, predict it. And I got like 125000 down after the election on an inauguration bet at pretty much 90 cents. I had to lay 90 cents. So I made about, you know, 10 to 1. Uh, and got paid out. So, I mean, I made money on that. I mean, and there have, so I'm not betting with the house. There's other people betting the other side of that only getting nine or 10 to one. I think that, I think that the, the opportunity you're talking about being liquid piling in, if you had played it like that, that that's just, that's just genius stuff because not only does it have to play out like that, you have to be ready on the sidelines Mm -hmm. You have the foresight to see it. You have to have the conviction to do it. I mean, don't get me wrong. That play was the nut play, but 
to be able to make that play was, you know, and then and then also, what if Biden just won Florida? It's just GG that plays out, and now you have money in the sidelines, right? So True. there there are ways True. that th- that this play doesn't go as well for you. But um, when you had Nate Silver on, actually, too, I was trying to get, I didn't get end up getting a message, but I had bet mostly based upon his predictive modeling and where I thought the lines were inefficient off of his modeling. And I kept piling Florida. You say that because Florida's line kept going up and up and up. And his model kept saying that Biden should be like winning like 60% of the time. But the line was going from like Trump 120 minus 125, Trump minus 165, Trump minus 175. To the end, I was piling on bookmaker at like Biden plus 160 at the end and his modeling hadn't moved. And I wondered if he screwed up his modeling with Florida, even though I know he's not a pollster, but, or maybe the polls just screwed up so much because of their underestimation of that Latino vote, Cuban vote in Southern Florida, how much advertising Trump supposedly threw into Southern Florida, calling Biden a communist and a socialist. And that really, you know, helped yeah. out. Well, the, the, the thing about um, the polling was that the polling was pretty accurate, but the polling had certain states where it was, fundamentally flawed to mm-hmm. a, a degree of let's just say four or five points now that sentence people will take as the polling was perfect or the polling was horrible and didn't work the polling overall worked if you look at national polling what Biden, it was very it was yeah. very close it was very yeah. close in yeah. certain areas it did badly but this is why it's an estimate there are going right. to be areas where it does poorly and how he did with uh, how biden did with hispanics in um in florida he did terrible he mm-hmm. just did, he did he did especially in um which county was Miami did yeah Miami um, did yep. he did he did just unbelievably bad no one could have seen that coming um there was just so much winning you, you're gonna get sick of winning based on how much winning there was in Miami unfortunately the rest of the country there wasn't quite as much winning um <laughs> you know I I I wish I had uh more time to to really dig into the political stuff but uh we're fortunately we're we're gonna have to call it call it a, a session here no it's all good um, man. So, so Bart, what are you working on these days and where can people follow you? And uh, why don't you tell the audience what you're, what you're up to these days? Well, yeah, I own crushlightpoker.com, which of course is a training site. And we do it a little bit different than Upswing where it's sort of like a weekly content as opposed to modules. I've been doing that for many, many years. And, uh, you know, I also commentate on Hustler Casino Live, which is now the gold standard of poker live streams. I don't know if you've caught it, Doug. Usually once a month, I'll be on there. The next time on October 22nd, it is amazing, like the quality that Ryan Feldman's put out. I'm sure he'd love to have you on the show sometime if you're in L.A. We can hook that up. Uh, maybe we can even play on the same table. We'll see. We, we also have TCH down the street from you and I, too. But uh, yeah, and I'll, I'm flying to the World Series tomorrow. So uh, I really appreciate you having me on. Maybe we can do it again sometime. But thanks. Thanks a lot. No, it was it was great. I appreciate it. we had we honestly we had so many things to talk about that we did not get to today. Um, a lot of great bits, and uh, I think it was it was a great conversation. Yep. Definitely appreciate you taking the time to to come on. And that's going to be a wrap for us today, guys. Thank you for joining us. Make sure to hit that subscribe button, follow the channel. We're on every podcast, so you do not miss an episode. Hit the follow button, hit the like button, leave me a comment. And you know what, guys? Just for you on YouTube today, how about you tell me in the in the chat box below? Occasionally, we talk about subjects off of poker and crypto. What do you most want to hear us talk about? What subject are you, you interested in? As well as maybe some potential guests that you would like to see on the channel. That's going to be it. Thank you for joining us today. I'll see you again soon.